The original paraphernalia for the flash fiction contest had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Stuart, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Lieberman spoke frequently of making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as little tradition as was represented by the current box. Mr. Garrett and his oldest son Nick hold the black box securely on the stool until Mr. Lieberman can stir the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Lieberman substituted slips of paper for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood had been all very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population was more than three hundred and likely to keep growing, it was better to use materials that would fit more easily into the confined space. The fourth incarnation of the Escape Artist's Flash Fiction Contest is here. Pseudopod is leading the charge this time. Every author may submit up to two original stories of 500 words or less for consideration. Submissions are open now until September 15. The competition will begin in October. The three winning stories will be purchased and run as an episode of Pseudopod. Stories will be published on a members-only section of the forums, so first publication rights will not be expended by participating in the contest. It's easy to become a member. Visit our forums for rules and details at forum.escapeartists.net. To enter, visit pseudopod.submittable.com forward slash submit. Good luck! And may the most horrific win. Podcastle, episode three hundred and seventy eight, for August twenty five, twenty fifteen. Flash fiction extravaganza, strange destinies, rated PG. Hello folks, welcome back to Podcastle. I'm your co-editor and host, Graham Dunlop. Feels like I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? You right? In my hemisphere, it's still winter and... Oh boy, there's been one of those bugs going around and everybody's getting sick. But chances are you're in that other hemisphere, where it's sunny and summery. Hope you're enjoying it. This week's podcastle is one of our flash fiction extravaganzas. We're calling it Strange Destinies because we've stories about where life takes you, where it might take you, where it has taken you. What do you do about that? I've actually been thinking about where my own life has taken me lately, particularly around whether I've made the most of my creative choices. I've been in computing for a long time now, as a career and as an interest. And for a really long time, I think that was enough of a creative outlet. I love coding, programming, despite what you might think there is an artistry 
a happiness about good code that goes beyond the joy of a problem solved. Another creative outlet, of course, is narrating. I love this as well. It gives me immense satisfaction to render the written word into audio and bring a story to you, whether you've read it before or not, and hope that the emotion of the tale comes through. But I believe there's other ways I could explore my creativity, so I think I'm at a time where I'm exploring my own destinies. And the people in these stories are doing so as well. Let's meet them, shall we? Our first story is Yaga Dreams of Growing Up by Eileen Weedbrock. It was first published in Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, number 29, September 2013. Eileen loves reworking fairy tales, and in fact, you can find another reworking, her Green Man story, over at Pseudopod, episode 406, Breath Stirs in the Husk. Stories read to you by Elizabeth Tennant. Elizabeth is an artist who says of her work, It focuses on intimate revelations. I show the things that people do, the specific and strange things that we feel. Nothing is quite as fascinating or as odd to me as the human mind and how it changes. Find out more about her and see examples of her work at www.elizabethtennant.com Yaga Dreams of Growing Up by Eileen Weidbrock When Yaga grows up, she wants to have a house on chicken legs so it can walk away from solicitors, would-be thieves, nosy strangers, village raiders, tax collectors, Anya the Cartwright's daughter, and all of Anya's friends. Yaga wants handsome men to ride by this house, dawn, dusk, noon, and night, one for each marker of the sun's passage. She wants a talking cat to tidy the house and do the mending, a hound dog to take out the trash. She wants a fence made from the bones of the schoolgirls who tripped her on accident. She wants iron teeth to bite through the hands of those who point and call her names, who make fun of her hand-me-down dresses, or her worn-through shoes, or her calloused hands, or her crazy aunts, Yaka won't grow up like her aunts, won't make charms and dance naked beneath the waxing moon, won't cry over a husband she had to turn into a frog for fooling around. When Yaga lives in a chicken-leg house, no one will send boys to knock on the door to smile and lie to Yaga about how pretty she looks. They won't go back to Anya and laugh and snicker about how pathetic Yaga is, how gullible and homely. Because Yaga will take the head of the next boy who comes and use his skull as her doorknob, the next as a knocker, next a gatepost cap, then a birdbath, a paving stone, a flower pot, until Anya sends no more or there are no more left to send. Yaga will at last be free. She will never let herself be like Anya or her aunts or any of the others, because she is different, better, born to be stronger, born to be something the rest of them aren't. The house on chicken legs will wear shabby with age. The thatch roof will leak. The chimney will let in a draft. The chicken legs will tremble at the knee from arthritis. Before Yaga can realize it hasn't been enough, that witches are made, not born. And welcome back. Eileen said about this story, Baba Yaga is one of my favorite characters in all of folklore because she's one of the few witches who's named. So often similar characters are simply called 
the witch or the crone or the stepmother, but not Yaga. She takes on an identity all her own and keeps it across many tales. But we never get to see her before she was an old woman. That's where the spark for Yaga Dreams of Growing Up began. Our second story is Mrs. Stiltskin by Bonnie Jo Stufflebean. It was first published in Lakeside Circus, March 2014. Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam lives in Texas with her partner and two literarily named cats, Gimli and Don Quixote. That's an odd pairing. <laughs> she holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast program and curates the annual Art and Words show in Fort Worth, Texas. Her work has appeared in magazines such as Clarksville, Lightspeed, Strange Horizons and Goblin Fruit. You can visit her on Twitter at Bonnie Jo Stuffle or at BonnieJoStufflebeam.com. The stories are read to you by my very good friends Alastair Stewart and Marguerite Kenner. Alastair and Marguerite are a dynamic duo living in Milton Keynes in the UK. I always think of that Style Council song, Come to Milton Keynes. With seemingly every tiny minute of their time filled, they hurtle together through life at breakneck speed, Alice Dare pursuing an increasingly eclectic series of work projects, and Marguerite striding like some she-hulk through the corridors of legal power. Alice Dare you can hear every week over at Pseudopod and frequently at Escape Pod. And he is, of course, our benevolent escape artist's overlord. Marguerite you can hear over at Cast of Wonders, the fiction podcast for young adults, where she's editor and host and does a spiffingly amazing job. Mrs. Stiltskin by Bonnie Jo Stuffelbeam You say you knew nothing of the stolen babies. I knew nothing. And you didn't suspect anything? Not one little thing. Officer, my husband's always been an eccentric little man. He's always been peculiar. I I knew nothing, you see. Tell us what happened. A month ago, he came home with a wriggling bundle in his arms. It was not the first time. He often returned with bundles. They usually held loaves of bread. He said it was bread. He took it into the other room. We had dinner with the children. Lamb and potatoes roasted in rosemary and butter. I make the best potatoes. Oh, and peas from the garden, last of the season. Well, I heard some crying. He said it was the wind, but it didn't stop. I went into the room to check the window, and the baby was in a ball on the bedsheets. I unfolded him. He was beautiful. Where did Mr. Stiltskin say the baby came from? He didn't. He was as surprised as I was. We named him Jacob. The other children loved him, of course. He was a blessing from the Lord. So a baby appears in your bed after your husband comes home with a bundle, and you believe he doesn't know where the baby came from. The bundle was bread. Rye from the bakery down the street. We had it with dinner. The children ate so quickly. It's not easy for them, you know, so many siblings. Mrs. Stiltskin, isn't it possible your husband may have brought the baby with the bread? He wouldn't have lied to me. Bread and a baby are not one and the same. The other children, they arrived the same way. The Lord smiles down on those who love him. 
I may be a little ripe, but I'm in no way stupid. I never said you were, Mrs. Stiltskin, but why would the bread bundle move? The bundle didn't move. You said it did. It didn't. Bread does not move. Earlier, you said- My husband left the bread with me in the kitchen. I didn't see a thing move. He went straight to the kitchen. Don't I deserve a son? Of course you do. Do you have children, officer? Two. Two girls. Precious. Do you deserve them? Deserve? It's not a question of deserve. They come whether you deserve them or not. What would you have done, huh? If you and your missus, if you'd tried and tried, you were so in love, you tried, you wanted nothing more than a child, a physical manifestation of that love, you tried and you failed. You failed because your wife, she was as dried up as a rotten pumpkin, your husband shriveled as a sun-dead worm, and this is all hypothetical, of course, but your house was so quiet, as if the quiet may deafen you. You weren't even sure you could hear anymore, so quiet. And your wife's belly lay flat as a flapjack, and you deserved it. Boy, did you deserve it. You'd been in love long enough to have them. A hypothetical. What would you have done? Me. I don't know. What would I have done? It's an impossible question. It didn't happen to me that way. How could I know? And then a girl... Too young to have what you deserve. Too lazy. Would she take care of him? Of course not. She couldn't even spin straw into gold. You'd be surprised how many girls like this there are, stuck in impossible situations. And what do they do about it? They cry and moan. They sit and dream of silk they will never have, when they should be trying, at least. Not ambitious enough to try. She agrees. She offers the child. All for a kingdom. She would give a child for a castle. Would you take it? Would you save a poor child crying on the street? How is it different? Of course I'd save a child on the street if I had to. Of course. Officers on it. I would save a child in need, but... Then you know. You know what it's like to want a child so bad you have to steal for it. I know. I mean, I think I understand. I, I see what it must have been like, but... Mrs. Stiltskin, we can't just let you go. We have to return the children to their rightful parents. The children are mine. The boy is mine. The children are yours. Don't, oh no, no, don't cry. Perhaps they are. The children, Mrs. Stiltskin, perhaps they are yours, but they are someone else's too. Please, we do what we have to. We have to return them. They belong with their real parents. I am their real parent. They were mine since we found them in the bedsheets. Gifts from God. The boy, he fit right in the space we left for him. Right down in the crib. His little head against the pillow. His arms clutching at the bear I sewed for him. Jacob Stiltskin. He has his father's nose, you know. And he will grow into a fine little lad. He's safe. He's been ours all along. Our little bundle of bread. And welcome back. Hmm. Deja vu? Our third story is Marking Time by Stephanie Burgess. It was originally published in Daily Science Fiction in February 2015. Stephanie grew up in Michigan but now lives in Wales, surrounded by castles and coffee shops. Uh, just 
that's the country Wales, not like, you know, inside of Wales. I mean, that would be weird. She's not Jonah. She's had over 30 short stories published in various magazines and anthologies, and her trilogy of Regency fantasy novels for children has just been reissued as a most improper boxed set. Her first fantasy novel for adults, Masks and Shadows, will be published by Peer Books in early 2016. You can find her online at www.stephanieburgess.com. Your narrator for this one is Kim Mintz. Kim is a survivor of Buffalo Winters, editing other people's work, and of experiences that would make a lesser woman weep. As a professional writer, she creates humorous and historical blog entries for an online jewellery and candle retailer, amazing ad copy, and sterling newsletter content that will make you want to buy all of the candles and jewellery. All the things! For the travellers, she waxes eloquent for MapQuest, about regional landmarks and must-see attractions. Under the heading of voice actor, she has several audiobooks available on Amazon and Audible, and has read several stories for the Far-Fetched Fables podcast. Samples of her audio projects can be found on the website kimmintsvoiceactor.com and other musings on Twitter at KimIsWriting. Recent writing projects include July Contest Runner-Up on Fictuary.com for the short comic romance The Problem with Poplars and personal experience essay Pratt Falls and Pizza on TheOmniverse.org Marking Time by Stephanie Burgess This speed marks the moment you told Tom Merchant, high on your first-ever vodka shots and the teeth-jittering adrenaline of being out, even just as part of a group with Tom Merchant, the most brilliant, amazing guy you'd ever met, that you couldn't care less about your practical engineering major, that thing that your parents were both so proud of. No, you declared, slamming down your fourth shot. You were going to be an artist instead. Tom looked at you with real interest in his eyes for the first time ever, and you changed your major the next day, hungover and scared, but bone-deep determined to follow through and be the girl who could impress him. Still, your hands shook as you signed the forms, and you couldn't bring yourself to tell your parents for over four months. By then, you and Tom had unofficially moved in together, you and him jamming all your clothes and books together into your single dorm room. That's the next beat on the necklace. You were shaking again when you hung up from the phone call with your parents that night, the one where you admitted everything. But he hugged you, and he told you you were amazingly brave for standing up against fascist authority. Who cared what they thought after that? You didn't go home for Christmas that year, for the first time ever. Instead, you and Tom got a ride from one of his friends to Chicago. You curled up in a blanket on their floor on Christmas Eve, while Tom sat up smoking pot and debating politics for hours. So smart and articulate and vivid and funny. You could barely believe you really got to be there watching him up close. You told yourself you'd never been so happy in your life. The next bead marks graduation. Your parents were there, in the background at least, smiling tightly and watching you with big, worried eyes, while you held yourself rigid, waiting just waiting to leap to Tom's defense the moment that they made a single wrong move. 
They never understood how special he was, and he was right. He really was. They always tried to ruin everything. But they didn't say a word. Not even when you moved with Tom two days later, following him across the country to his dream grad school and declining all three of the MFA programs you'd gotten into back east. You picked up a secretarial job instead, in his department, and he promised he'd absolutely make the same sacrifices for you, too, one day. After all, that's what couples did when they were really, truly committed. When your mother did try, just once, to ask you whether it was worth it, whether you and Tom couldn't live apart for just one or two years while you took your own degree, you shut her down with a death glare before she could even finish her question. You wouldn't answer her phone calls for the next two weeks, following Tom's advice. He said you should really be separating from your parents by now anyway. They certainly couldn't be a part of any true and honest life together, not when they were so controlling and judgmental about your relationship. How could she even think to ask a question like that? You and Tom both knew love was more important than anything. Bead after bead sits in the pot before you now. Feel them slipping through your fingers as you slide them onto the leather cord, forming the necklace of all your moments. Knot them tight with all of your pain. This is the most important art project of your life. Think of it as a final exam. Secretaries are always the recipients of gossip, aren't they? They find out about everything. You even found out about me when the others in the office whispered about the crazy woman at the farmer's market with her beads and her weird stories. It was only inevitable that you would find out about Tom. It was only unfortunate that you didn't find out in time before you agreed to take out that second mortgage, before he had a chance to clear out your joint account. Tonight, your children have gone to bed at last, leaving echoes of shouting and tears in the shadows of the darkened house. They're angry and scared and broken, just like you. Maybe one day they'll actually blame Tom for what's happened. But right now, you're the only parent left, the only focus they can find for all their anger and their loss. Anyway, you were always the boring one, weren't you? The parent they rolled their eyes at and found easy to dismiss. You never even had any dreams of your own, as far as they could tell. Tonight, all of your old dreams seem a long way away, as distant as all the other lives you could have led over the years. All you have to grasp onto now, in the silent kitchen of the house that you are about to lose, are the beads that I gave you in the market today. The only question left to ask is, how many moments are you prepared to sacrifice? Exactly how far back will you go? The moment you held your first art show in college, with Tom celebrating by your side, when you kept laughing out loud in wonder and delight? The moment you finally gave in to Tom's passionate arguments and told your parents not to call you anymore? Or the moment you found his letter on the table? The necklace is finally complete. Listen to your children's sleeping breaths upstairs in that pause before they wake to rage and blame you once again. Your children are made of those moments, too. The phone rings and rings as you sit in the darkened kitchen, staring at the finished necklace. Finally, the answering machine clicks on. For the first time in five years, you hear your mother's voice, stilted with pride and reserve and fear. Anne, she says, 
I know. We heard what happened. Humiliation burns through your body like a toxin. Dread almost chokes you. To imagine how they've discussed it. You pick up the necklace, shivering convulsively, with the horror of that thought. We tried to tell her, they must have said to each other, if only she had listened. But this time, for the first time, you know exactly what to do. Just shatter those fragile, terrible beads on the hard table before you, and you'll never have to hear those words again, not even in your imagination. You'll be that fresh, bright girl so full of promise, the engineering student with all A's, the girl with everything ahead of her, and pride glowing in her parents' voices as they brag about her to anyone who will listen, not this tired, empty woman who made the wrong choices and lost it all. You take a deep breath. You lift the necklace high above the hard wooden table. And then, in a single moment, you pull it over your head. Everyone's lives are made of moments. You wear every one of them, your mistakes and your past, as you force yourself to pick up the impossibly heavy phone and take a step into your future. Mom, your voice is scratchy when you speak. You hear your mother's breath catch in what sounds like a sob. Your fingers tighten around the phone. Mom, you whisper across the distance with your beads around your neck. I'm here. And for the first time in years, it's really true. And welcome back. Sense of doing this before. Of this story, Stephanie says, This is a deeply personal story for me. Although none of the details are taken from real life, I wrote it after catching up for the first time in years with a lot of old friends and thinking about how differently all of our lives had gone than we'd expected when we were in college. Turning now to feedback, we're taking a look at what folks said about episode 368, Dinkley's Ice Cream by Effie Cyberg. It was read to you by Podcastle's very own Khalida Muhammad Ali. Seems like this one was pretty universally enjoyed, by the forum folks anyway. The comments ranged from the short and sweet. Wow, amazing, I really loved this one. From Wintermute, to the thoughtful and insightful. I may be saying this as I am working in higher education, but the last sentence of this story brought a bit of goosebumps and teary eyes. This was wonderful. I was impressed with the way the author painted well the way children think and process the world. I was more impressed with the idea that the future and present can be transformed through nostalgia of one's own past. I was even more impressed, yet, of the power of childhood. It seems the author is teaching the basic truth with a capital T that childhood has significantly more power than we give it credit for. Our adult lives are living on the fuel of childhood past. That comment was from BRL Teach. One thing that came up, some thought there was a sinister overtone to the ice cream, that it was maybe addictive and set to drain our heroine's pockets. But that didn't prove to be the case. Unblinking asked, Was I the only one who felt that growing sense of dread as she was drawn further and further into nostalgia? 
and relief when the wonderfully horrible ice cream shop went away. And Trish M replied, Oh, you're definitely not the only one. Luckily, this is Podcastle, not Pseudopod. I was not only relieved, but happy that the flashbacks, which seemed at first to merely highlight her present unhappiness, ended up giving her the inspiration and strength to plan for a better future. I also like the meta-implication of how fantasy stories can help people figure out ways of dealing with real life. Good story! Dear listeners, why don't you drop by and register at forum.escapeartists.net. It doesn't take long. If you have any problems at all, just email support at escapeartists.net. Then come and join your fellow listeners in discussing on and opining about this week's stories. Well, we have come once again to the end of an episode. On behalf of everyone at Podcastle, including our tireless slushers Jennifer Albert, Melissa Hoflich, Sarah Goldman, Khalida Muhammad Ali, and Arun Jiwa, thank you for stopping by and sharing with us in listening to this story. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is Graham Dunlop reminding you that whilst you never know where life may take you, you're not stuck once you get there. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. To find out more about them, check their website at www.shiva-in-exile.de. Podcastle could not be without the generosity of our donors. Did you know you can support us from as little as $2 a month? That's half a cafe-made flat white. A regular donation of just $2 helps immensely, more than you may think. And one-time donations are fabulous as well. Please help if you can. John Lennon said, There's nowhere you can't be that isn't where you're meant to be.